welcome to the Bridegroom Speaks podcast with Laura Ercolino. One of our signature services here at Hope's Garden is our Brides of Christ group studies. We meet over a 12-week period to study the Song of Songs using our guidebook, The Cantata of Love, which is a verse-by-verse reading of the Song of Songs written by Father Blaise Arminian and published by Ignatius Press. This part of the song, these verses that we're going to look at tonight, 1-9 through one eleven, are very, very dear to my heart, very special to me in my relationship with the bridegroom. So we're going to begin um, at the bottom of 107 in the cantata. To my mare harnessed to Pharaoh's chariot, I compare you, my love. Your cheeks show fair between their pendants, and your neck within its necklaces. We shall make you golden earrings and beads of silver. Where does the bridegroom come from? How did he suddenly appear, some are asking. In truth, this sudden appearance is quite in conformity with the entire biblical revelation as is the spiritual experience of God's manifestation. It is proper to the creator, says St. Ignatius Loyola, to enter, to exit, to cause motions in the soul, drawing it whole into the love of his divine majesty. I say without cause, without any feeling nor any previous knowledge of an object, All through the song, we see the bridegroom appear and disappear in such an abrupt way, mysteriously, as Jesus does so often in the gospel and in his relationship with us. And so this is a theme that we're going to talk about throughout the entire song. This coming and going of the bridegroom, this hiding and seeking, seeking and finding, it is a theme, not just of the song, but like Father Blaise says, it is the theme of our spiritual life, of our relationships with Jesus. How is it that he's promised us he is always with us, and yet so often we are unaware of his presence, and it seems that we cannot find him. It seems as though he has left us. And the other theme that is with this also is his coming and going, and St. Bernard writes beautifully about this, and he talks about how In all the times that the bridegroom has come to visit his soul, he never has had any warning. He's never known of his approach. He just knows the moment he's there. Because when Jesus comes, when the bridegroom comes, he comes full of truth and grace, of beauty and wisdom. And suddenly his soul is light. It's light in that it feels like it's floating and it's full of light. And he knows only the bridegroom can do that. So he knows the bridegroom has come and he knows when the bridegroom leaves, not that the bridegroom gives any warning of his departure, but suddenly his soul seems to be in the dark again and all that grace and beauty and wisdom is gone too. And so he says that just like the bride of the song, every time the bridegroom departs again, he will cry with her, return Return, return, my beloved. 
And so here the bride was just asking moments ago, where do you rest your flock at noon? Where can I find you whom my heart loves? I don't want to wander after false loves anymore. And just moments later, the bridegroom is there. I first began reading the song and reading the cantata. At first, it like kind of stunned me that the bridegroom's very first words to the bride are to compare her to a horse. <laughs> and I thought, really, Jesus? <laughs> Comparing to a horse. Okay. But then I began to really read the cantata and read the saints and learn the meaning of these words. And it's absolutely beautiful. So I want to spend some time just on this first line, just on verse 1-9. To my mare, harnessed to Pharaoh's chariot, I compare you, my love. So first of all, let's get a scene in our minds. Let's imagine Pharaoh's chariot as he's chasing after the Israelites as they're trying to find their freedom and walk to the promised land. And his chariots, Pharaoh's chariots, are chasing them down. So this is the scene that Jesus, that the bridegroom is speaking of, that he sees his love as one of those mares that's pulling one of Pharaoh's chariots. So the mare is enslaved. It's a symbol for the children of Israel. They were enslaved by Pharaoh. They were chained to Pharaoh. Okay, so this is the mare that he's referring to. And if we take a look at his words very closely, he says, my mare. So even as she is harnessed to Pharaoh, even as she is enslaved and chained to the enemy of his chosen people, he is still hers. So what is he saying to the bride and to each of us? That you have been mine always. Since the moment of your baptism, when I was set as a seal upon your soul, you are mine and I am yours. Whether you know it or believe it or not, whether you are enslaved by your own sins, your own negative self-talk, by the sins of others, the traumas and wounds that you've experienced, whatever it is, we all have chains, right? We've all been, we all know that being bound by something other than God. And he's reassuring us that even in those seasons and times, years, maybe it's been your whole life up to now, that you have been enslaved, you are still his. You belong to him. That seal that is put upon us by God and the Holy Spirit in our baptism is called an indelible mark. There is nothing, nothing that can take that away from us. Nothing that is done to us and nothing that we can do. We belong to the bridegroom. And so he's telling her that even when you were a mare enslaved by Pharaoh, you were still my mare. You were mine. And then he gives her her true name. My love. My love, that is your name. The bridegroom looks at you and he calls you my love. 
It is the reason that he suffered the passion was because of his passionate love of you. Your cheeks show fair between their pendants and your neck within its necklaces. So even enslaved, even with the adornments that they would have put on their mares, the bridles, bejeweled bridles and reins, he could see her beauty. But he says to her, we shall make you golden earrings and beads of silver. We, the Holy Trinity, we will take those very chains and turn them into jewels. The very things that enslave us, that wound us. He doesn't just free us from them and then sweep them under the rug and say, okay, we're done with that. He takes those very things, those very chains and transforms them into beautiful jewels. He makes beauty from ashes. He turns wounds into rubies. If we think even about his sacred humanity that was wounded, and when he rose from the dead, he still had the marks of those wounds. They weren't forgotten. They were not forgotten, but now they were glorified. Now they were radiant and splendid. We don't need to forget what we've been through to get to where we are now. In fact, he doesn't want us to forget, but he wants to show us that if we give him everything, that he can make those very things that were tragic and traumatizing, he can turn them into jewels. He can bring beauty from what was the ugliest. In fact, sometimes I've seen how he takes the very ugliest and from that, he makes the most beautiful. It's like the uglier it is, the more beautiful he makes it. <laughs> That's redemption. That's redemption. It's beyond just healing. So I want to tell you a story about these lines and in my relationship with the bridegroom, because it's pretty miraculous. So these lines are one that at all of our Hope Blooms retreats, I give a talk on these lines at the end of the retreat about how he does just that, how he transforms our wounds and our chains into jewels. And so last May, I was getting ready for a Hope and Bloom retreat. And so the week before, as I was you know, reading the cantata over and over again in this section and praying about it and thinking about it. And of course, every night when I said, okay, Jesus, what do you want to sing to me tonight? And I opened the cantata, it opened to this section. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm get preparing this talk. Then the talk was over and I got to go to Christ the Bridegroom Monastery for a couple of days. And so I'm there and I'm having my prayer time. And I asked him, what do you want to sing to me? And I opened the cantata and it opened to these pages. And I thought, okay, maybe my book is broken now after two years. <laughs> maybe it's just, you know, it's always going to open to that page. <laughs> so I took the Bible that the nuns keep there in the prayer corner. And I said, okay, sing to me from the whole Bible. What do you want to say to me? Guess what it opened to? <laughs> These verses of the Song of Songs. <laughs> and I was like, okay, wait a minute. I am obviously missing something. There must be something else about these lines that you want to speak to me. So I just took out my journal and I just sat quietly and I waited and I listened. And what came to me was, first of all, 
what it means to be a mayor of God. And that to be his mayor means that we have to hand the reins of our life, the reins of our heart, of our desires, our dreams, our hopes. We have to put the reins in the bridegroom's hands. That we have to allow him to lead us. And that we have to allow him to meek or to train and form us, just as you would a horse. Because to be a mare of God, we must be humble. We must be docile to the spirit. We must be meek. But we also must always remember that just like a mare, and a mare that was harnessed to Pharaoh's chariot, a war horse, that we have strength and we have beauty and grace. To be meek and humble does not mean to be weak and ineffective. That when Christ is at our center, when we are rooted in him, then we are strong like that mare because of his strength in us. And one thing I heard him say very clearly to me was that God's mare is not a war horse, nor a workhorse. That he doesn't send us, you know, out to be aggressive and not to trample over people. <laughs> and he also doesn't give us to-do list. He doesn't want us working ourselves to the bone. The real key is in handing the reins over to him and letting him lead, being docile to the Holy Spirit. And then I thought about the things that had enslaved me, the chains that I had been bound by for so long. And I looked at my past and at my present, and I saw how truly, truly, he was transforming my wounds into jewels, taking my chains and adorning me with jewels. That just like St. Augustine, I could sit there and look where my wounds used to be, look into those deepest, darkest places in my heart that were so shattered, and I could see his glory now. I could see his redemptive power, his healing, his love there, and say with St. Augustine that I looked into my deepest wounds, and there I saw your glory, your glory, and I was dazzled. So after this, wonderful prayer time. He did something really miraculous, <laughs> but I got to go back a little bit to 2019. In 2019, when I just started having inklings of the ministry he was calling me to, I think I had just told Dee that I think it's going to be called Hope's Garden. And then I went away to Mexico, to Guadalupe with Christopher West and the Theology of the Body Institute. While we were there, one of the places that we went was to the Aztec temples. And it was there at the Aztec temples that the Lord really made it clear to me what was going to be at the heart of my mission. And a lot of it was through taking me back into some of my deepest, deepest wounds. At the Aztec temples, before Our Lady came, the Aztecs were sacrificing sometimes thousands of people a day. Many of these people who were being sacrificed went willingly. 
they offered their lives because they thought it's what they had to do to save their families. Because the reason they were sacrificing so many people was because they thought they had to keep pleasing the, the sun God and the moon God and the rain God, or they wouldn't have crops. They wouldn't have crops to feed their children. And so they would go willingly to have their hearts ripped out of their chest and to die, thinking this is what God demanded. And I realized that for so many years, I let my heart be ripped out of my chest. I let my soul be trampled on and darkened, thinking that's what was best for my family, that that's what marriage was about, that this is what God was asking of me to sacrifice myself the way Jesus had sacrificed himself. There were moments when I would tell him, if you want me to die here in this bed, then I will willingly die for you. And when I was there, he made it very clear to me that there is never, never any justification for one human person to violate and wound another. And marriage is not justification for abuse, for rape, for emotional abuse, for disregarding the personhood. In marriage, it's even more of a defilement, of a devastation because you have vowed before God to honor and cherish one another. And so even though I had been told for so long that this was what I had to suffer because I was married, this was part of marriage. Jesus made it very clear to me that what was happening in marriage was the same thing in his eyes that had happened in those temples in Mexico and that it had to end that he was the one true sacrifice and our God does not demand sacrifice of human life, not even spiritually dying, not letting your soul be killed by someone else. He does not. And I had to realize that I couldn't save anyone by all my sacrificing. Only Jesus, only Jesus is the savior. And he's already done that. He's already made that sacrifice for us. And so he taught me that what he wants of us is to be self-gift to one another, not to sacrifice ourselves to the point of soul death or physical death, but to know what a gift we are, that God created us as a gift to the world, as a gift to the people whom he entrusts to us, who he puts in our lives, and that we need to see everyone else for the gift that they are. And that's how we need to look upon each other and treat each other. And so to learn how to be a self-gift, first we have to learn that we are gift and go to prayer and ask him, what gift did you hide within me? Help me to uncover it first so then I can offer it to the world. And so I didn't want to forget. I didn't want to ever forget this day and what he had taught me and how he had told me to pray for his roses that Mother Mary was gathering his roses in her mantle, shining with the stars, and she was going to bring them to Hope's Garden and to pray for them. So as we walked all around and I looked at all the things that, you know, the handmade jewelry and art and all that was being sold, I thought, I need a bracelet. I need a bracelet because that is something that I can wear all the time. And I want something that will remind me Remind me of the mission that he has given me. 
and remind me every single day to pray and offer myself for his roses. And so I looked and looked and I couldn't find any bracelets, at least not any that didn't have Aztec symbols or Aztec gods on them. And I thought, well, I don't want that. <laughs> so then on the way back to the buses, it was a long walk and I was already, I didn't know it at the time, but my, my lungs were already not functioning properly. And I was, I was kind of slow the whole time we were there. They thought it was just elevation sickness. So I told everybody, just, just keep going. I got to slow down and breathe for a few minutes. Just go ahead. But once I was alone, this man came off this other path with a sack of stuff to sell. And he kept trying to sell me another necklace of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And I thought, I've already bought like five of these. I don't need another, but I need a bracelet. So I kept trying to say no, no, no to him. And then all of a sudden he pulls this out of his bag. And he says, if you buy the necklace, I'll give you this for free. So I said, okay, fine, <laughs> I'll buy the necklace because I know this is my last chance <laughs> at finding a bracelet before I leave the temples. <laughs> so it was just a, a plain silver bangle with, it's got like corn and wheat on it. And I thought this will do. And this is nice and sturdy. I can wear this everywhere. So from that moment on, I wore this all the time. And it reminded me to pray for the roses. When I was at the monastery last year, and he was showing me by my remembering where I had been and now where I was, that he was and had really transformed my chains into jewels. And then I actually took it off because the water there sometimes tarnishes jewelry. So before I was getting in the shower, I took it off. And when I took it off, I noticed that the inside of it was no longer silver. The inside is gold and it has been a year now. And when I came home from the monastery, I tried using tarnish remover, jewelry <laughs> cleaner. And I thought, am I crazy? And then I asked him, I said, am I crazy? Or did you do this? Like only you could do this. Did you turn this to gold? And he said, this is a reminder for me and for all the women at Hope's Garden that he keeps all his promises that he is faithful and that he is going to transform our chains into jewels and make us earrings of gold and silver beads. And so now I have this permanent reminder. And as Therese said, the gold is the perfection of the bridegroom. The perfection of his love is golden. And our love that we offer back to him is silver. And he takes his love and our love. And from that, he makes us jewels. So that's why these verses have a very, very special place in my heart. For more resources and our consecration to Christ the Bridegroom, visit hopesgarden.com, the sanctuary where the spousal love of Christ the Bridegroom heals hearts, marriages, and families. You may also want to join our community powered by Mighty Networks. Download the Mighty Networks app and find us at Hope's Garden.